Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. This week, we're having a really important discussion about institutional racism and particularly the effects that this has on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in the workplace. We're first joined by Kerry Klim, who's a Kuku Yelenji and Koko Lama Lama woman based in Minjin on unceded Yagara and Turbal land. Kerry speaks about her experiences of navigating institutional racism in the workplace at a major humanitarian organization where she worked for nine years. She also takes us through some of the physiological and psychological effects of everyday institutional racism, and we're very grateful to her for sharing her story. We're then joined by Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman. Chelsea's work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities. She's a founding member of Inala Wangara, which is an Indigenous Community Development Association, and she's a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. Chelsea discusses the embeddedness of institutional racism across different sectors, including the NGO sector and academia, and the particular burden that is placed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when both navigating these systems and speaking truth to power. This is Carrie Klim on Women on the Line. Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Ah, uh, yeah, yundu yalada, priya, nagubori Kerry, gugu yalanji, yala, koko, lama lama. Nagumi Anjan Bandaday, Turable Yala Yagra. So, uh, as I'm introducing myself, I'm acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which I'm yarning to you today in Mianjin, which is the Turable and Yagra people. To sort of start out, could you tell us a bit about your own background, I guess, in the media and communications world, and what motivated you to move into the NGO sector? Yeah, so a bit of a background about myself. I uh, grew up in Cairns in far north Queensland in the 70s and 80s, showing my age. And a very defining moment in my childhood was in the, I was about grade 10, so about 1986. There was lots of coverage in the local news, the Cairns Post on television, about Indigenous people, Aboriginal people who had come down from the Cape, going to the Cairns Hospital, getting health appointments and the stories were around Aboriginal people in the parks on the Esplanade and causing a disturbance and it really angered me because I knew the true story in terms of why Indigenous people were there. There was no places to stay, um, the history of colonisation but you know the background was never provided in these news reports and It was a defining moment for me because I, from that moment, wanted to be a journalist and a journalist that worked in commercial or mainstream media because I didn't see any Aboriginal people in the media um, on television or in the papers. And so I embarked on this career of journalism. I went to university. I studied journalism. I worked in journalism for quite some time in commercial and Indigenous media across print, radio and television. And then I happened to get a job in government, Queensland government, in communications. And they wanted someone to work on trying to promote and get more Indigenous foster carers. And from that moment, I realised how poorly governments and um, agencies were communicating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as their audience. 
So I felt very strong about improving the way government, not-for-profits, anyone spoke to us, communicated with us. And then I was a humanitarian at heart. And so I really wanted to work for an agency that was aligned with my humanitarian values. Mm. When you joined this humanitarian organisation, what were some of the the things that you started experiencing there? And um, what was your sort of position in the organisation? When I started this organisation, there was another Aboriginal person at the start in this department. It was quite a huge department, a mega department of about 160 people. And my role was to communicate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories, write stories about our work in this space. And this huge mega department worked in media, communications, fundraising, marketing. So it was quite huge. Um, and there was another Aboriginal person at the start, but they left into another role. So I was alone quite quickly in this big department, and I felt it. It was quite isolating, the bombardment of questions on me, but also me questioning them um, and their behaviour, their communication. And the very first thing I did question straight away was, although my role was to write about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander projects and stories and our work, fundraising never uh, promoted it. So it was never promoted as a way to, you know, ask people to donate. I asked the fundraising team and said, well, why don't you? You promote every, everyone else and all these other projects and programs in our organisation. Why not our work here? And they said, because the statistics show and their research shows that Australians don't want to donate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs. And that was really... That was really hard to hear. I thought, well, why am I here? And I asked this many times and many times. That same answer came back to me. And I pushed and pushed and I said, well, you don't know if you don't try. And I, I worked in this organisation for nine years. And I think about by year seven of pushing, they eventually did put it in one of their tax components. And it was amazingly received. Yeah. I mean, I think this also speaks to the sort of broader NGO landscape in so-called Australia, where there is a really, I guess, uneasy relationship with thinking about, you know, white saviorism overseas versus a lack of understanding about how to engage properly with people on stolen land. Absolutely. They just continued that narrative. And by continuing that narrative, I questioned what was I doing in this organisation? Why did they want me there? Over that nine-year period, I was the only Aboriginal person in this department. Not once did they look at employing more Aboriginal people. And it wore me down. It really wore me down. And the way they treated me, they ignored me. You know, I felt like they belittled me. I asked questions. And I would explain and it's like, I don't know, it's hard, to, it's hard to explain because I didn't really understand why they didn't understand. It was really exhausting, depressing, and my mental health quite rapidly deteriorated. Mm. What you're talking about there as well sort of speaks to this uh, really toxic push-pull between positioning you as a black woman in the organisation as, you know, sort of valued employee because you are the only Aboriginal employee in that in that department, but then this process of tokenization, but also extracting extra labour from you to sort of educate people about things that go above and beyond your role. 
seriously all the time. The position that I entered into this organisation is the position that I remained after nine years. I did not move anywhere up the chain. And I was never really asked, but I was asked of extra labour. Absolutely. I mean, educating is exhausting. Educating non-Indigenous people day in, day out is really exhausting. And, you know, I'd wake up and think, put your armour on, get ready, because I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what question will be asked. I don't know what will be you know, required of me. And honestly, some of the blows were really bruising. And one really horrible moment, which was the lowest of low, was when a really horrible speech was written that contained extremely racist content. I said, how did this come about? I was really shocked and angry, disappointed, so many emotions. And they just couldn't answer me. I took stress leave. And when I returned, I said, we need to change. This cannot happen again. This is, you know, toxic. This is damaging. And the question was, what should we do? And I said, we need anti-racism workshops. I will not hear any more about solutions to this racial violence. And I call it racial violence because of the way that it was impacting me and impacting my body, my mental health. And I said, no more cultural competency because that's not clearly working. No more diversity and inclusion because that's not working because I'm the only person here you're not even diversifying you're not including me no more referring to the reconciliation action plan because it's not about relationships it's about racism it's clear so I said we need anti-racism workshop it's the only way to tackle it and initially it was agreed to and then I researched and found Indigenous X provided workshops. I said, this is fantastic. Please, can we implement this here? And they said there was no funding to implement it. And it's just not good enough. I was wondering if you could speak to the sort of use of a language and co-optation that the sector kind of employs to avoid having these challenging uh, conversations. I think even the word racism for a start, it's racial violence. It's violent because as the victim and how it affected me physically, emotionally, mentally, it needs to be expressed as violence. It's not unconscious bias. It's not covert racism. It is absolutely racial violence. And I think white people have created these terminologies to make it sound less violent for what it is. So let's be clear. It is violence. It is racial violence. As an Aboriginal person, I, towards the end of my time there, it was very clear that I was distraught and things, and I wasn't well. I was crying every day in meetings. Um, nobody was really that concerned. They said to me, what can we do? Okay, there was this question, what can we do? How can we help? And I said, stop being racist. But they just didn't know what that meant. And I said, well, I'm explaining that the way that you're behaving is having this impact on me, ignoring me, belittling me, not recognising me for my value, for my worth. These are all racist actions. Still, they weren't able to change that behaviour. Now, what happens in this situation is, for pretty much every black person that might be listening to this, is you then become fearful for your employment. Because as soon as you start to speak or white people see you having mental health issues, you know that's going to be a weapon to be used against you. 
so you really try to hold it in, and I really did try to hold it in. But ultimately, I was um, I was broken, and this is what needs to be spoken more about. Racial violence impacts people's health in lethal ways. I had to leave for my health, but it's not it's not improved. I see two counsellors, and it's a daily work. I said I was the only Aboriginal person on the in this department, but if I was the only woman in a workplace of 160 and there were 159 men and just one woman, I don't think that would be allowed, you know, honestly. But but they think that it's okay to have one Aboriginal person who has to uphold every element of communication, who has to see every piece of communication, who has to ensure things are done correctly, respectfully. They didn't see any problem with that. And yet over that period, they... You know, they gave me accolades, they got awards, they sent me on leadership courses even. And it made me think, I feel like I've stepped back in time. I, I really did. Because they were stealing my intellect, they were stealing a piece of me, and they were just patting me on the head going, you're a good black, keep going, you know, here's a few awards. It was really, it's quite soul-destroying. I hear many times people go, oh, thank you. We've learnt so much, you know, in, in interactions and I explain what happened. Oh, we've learnt so much. Well, what did I get out of it? Really, in this interaction, you say that you've learnt, but I honestly don't believe that because we'll probably be back here in another couple of days talking about the same thing. But what, what do I get out of this interaction where you're learning? You're exhausting me. You're taking a piece of me. You are not giving back to me. There's, there's no reciprocal exchange. And I don't know, that's what reconciliation is supposed to be built on, but I certainly don't see that. There's many things that I think about when I think about what's occurring to me and how I'm being ignored. I've made complaints. I spoke up. I did everything that I thought possible to be heard, to be understood, and behaviours never changed. I was gassed. Why did people double down on their behaviour against me? And I spoke my truth. I started to speak up and speak my truth more and more. And that felt good for me. And then suddenly I thought, but things are not changing. People are, are people are not still hearing. And I, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I saw Dr. Chelsea Bond say one day, healing comes not from suddenly being believed, but in being loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And in that moment, I realized people know what happened to me. People believe me. That's not disputed. But nobody believes that I should be loved enough to be deemed worthy of justice. And this is where we are as Aboriginal Persian on the people in this country. It's undisputed fact of what happened at colonisation, stealing our children, stealing our land, stealing our languages, stealing us, stealing our money. It continues daily. And the intergenerational trauma. But Australians, non-Indigenous people do not believe that we're worthy enough of justice. That's what it boils down to. Kerry, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me, to share your story. I know it's been really challenging and I just am very, very grateful to you for taking the time to, to speak with me about it. Thank you also for allowing me to have my voice. Thank you, Priya. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. And we just heard an interview with Carrie Klim, who's a Kuku Yelenji and Coco Lama Lama woman, 
and who joined us to discuss her experiences of institutional racism at a major humanitarian organization in so-called Australia. Next up, we're joined by Associate Professor Chelsea Watago, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, and who provides more context around settler colonialism and institutional racism. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, this is, it's a big, heavy discussion to talk about institutional racism, racism in the workplace, but also the different kinds of labor and performances that are extracted from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in colonial institutions. But I was wondering if maybe we could start by talking, I guess, in a bit of a general sense about the effects um, and operation of institutional racism. What kind of relationship does this have to settler colonialism, but also, I guess, anti-Blackness in the colony? There's a really unfortunate kind of way of trying to understand racism in this time of um, trying, to, trying to work out if it's real and how much of it there is. And if you talk to any black fella about any subject, I guarantee you, you can find that racism exists. And it's every day. It's, uh, you know, I think it's Goldberg, it's part of the air that we breathe. It's everywhere. Racism is in the NGO sector. It's in government organisations. It's on the floors of parliament. It's everywhere so black fellas everywhere and every day have to navigate and strategize around it and we've been doing that for generations now and I think that's why I get a bit annoyed at the race scholars who suggest that we need to read more on race to understand it because what they fail to understand is black fellas have long had to theorize around how to survive in a, a racist and violent social world see the thing is People aren't really worried about racism. They're worried about being accused of being racist. So what they'll do is they'll do things to not be seen as racist. They will never remedy the racism. And so as much as we have to be honest with ourselves about organisations and their claims to care for black fellows and just know that they don't, they don't care about black fellows, we also have to then not expect that that somehow transforms once they're subject to a complaint. It won't. And, in fact, they'll up the ante because they've got to now really defend their image and white people's commitment to not being seen as racist is pretty, pretty strong. And they've become so, so effective at it. They intellectualise it. I mean, look, we have unconscious racism now, which for the record is not a thing. It's not an actual thing. It's, I believe, what we call a settler move to innocence. It's not a thing. It's an invention to make sure that white fellows are never held accountable for their racism. So we're always reminded of their innocence and the other thing they do is they, they come up with solutions for the future racisms. So they never attend to what happened. And this is where black fellows get portrayed by the complaint process. And, of course, Ahmed's talked about complaint and, you know, so it's not new. But what we know is that they'll never apologise. They'll never confess to it. They will never fix it. Any kind of outcome that black fellows get through these processes will be to keep black people quiet so that the organisation doesn't appear racist. So we have to be honest about how race plays out in these processes. We even know the race discrimination process. You go through conciliation through the Queensland Human Rights Commission, guarantee race is playing out in every step of that process because you'll be the one black person in a room full of white people. You'll get a support person, but they can't speak, yet the other party can get a lawyer who can represent them. So the processes that the perpetrators construct for themselves are designed to protect the perpetrator, even the external ones to those organisations. So if we know race is every day and everywhere, 
we should never ever entertain the idea that somehow through the complaint that that will magically disappear and justice will arrive for us. It won't. But that doesn't mean we don't complain. And I think what's really powerful about um, Kerry's action is she's done what a lot of black women have had to do, and that is to go to the public square and call on everyone else to hold these people accountable. Because we know that for these institutions, we know in the colony, we're deemed not worthy of anything. So why would our one complaint get heard? Why would anyone respond to that? And this is where solidarity gets tested. If someone's calling it out, we do have to step in and step up and be as courageous, if not more, as the victim of racial violence. Because we know that um, even in naming it, they're still not protected. Yeah, it's very much that, you know, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And a lot of concerns around institutional racism and racism in the workplace, you know, you get after the fact statements about people saying, oh, you know, I noticed that there was, this was a problem, but it's about being courageous enough to take action in that moment to actually support people and to stand up to these institutions as it's happening and all throughout that process, rather than once a complaint has been raised. And also it's not enough to tell victims of racial violence to take care of themselves. I'm really over that. And um, I hear it a lot. Yeah, I've written about it, but I, I, I just, this idea that in complaining about the racism experience, that in speaking about its violence, that we're not taking care of ourselves, that's the ultimate form of self-care is to tell the truth about the violence our body is subjected to every damn day, even though we know there's a price to be paid. So, you know, on the one hand, I feel for Sister as she shares the heartbreak that she's living every day. But at the same time, I also know that it's because she knows that she is worthy of better, that she is deserving of better, that she's speaking. And that says to me um, something about the strength of her in the midst of all the stuff that she's had to deal with. And I think we, we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, I think there's this idea that blackfellas um, um, as victims can never transcend that sense of victimhood, but there's power there and People watching need to, to take note of that, and but also we also have to remember our power in, in these moments that are meant to render us powerless. There's no way of, of winning, no matter, and this is, I mean, this is the ultimate kind of gaslighting, there's no way of winning in terms of how we respond to racism because if, if, if we are broken, the story is that we're just not strong enough, we're just not good enough. But if we still deliver in spite of then it suggested that racism didn't affect you either. And, you know, I, there's part of me that used the strategy of outperforming that the work still stood, that they couldn't take my work from me, that they couldn't deny that. Oh, they can. And they actually use your work to deny your account of racial violence and the toll that it takes on. Because, you know, blackfellas pay a price for it anyway, whether it's at home or at work. We pay a price for the racism we experience. And any given day we have to make choices or we don't even get the choice to make about how it impacts and which one it impacts and the guilt that comes with all of that. And so I think the other thing that we have to do and what I often talk to people about who are experiencing this is to not blame themselves for the things that are happening to them. That's the, that's the real violence here is that somehow we, we think that something that we did and if we just worked harder. And it's, it's like women in abusive relationships, you know, if I, just, if I just did this and maybe this would change. We he, I hear that a lot from blackfellas in the workplace, men and women, being if I just, if I just did all these things, then maybe they would, they would do this or, they, you know, they wouldn't treat me like that. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> it's not about your behaviour because it's about theirs. 
I think we have to be courageous when it comes to race. There are two sides, the right side and the wrong side. And I make no apologies for punching up and for calling out. I look forward to the day where we just, we don't sit back as neutral arbiters of racism or that we even think that that's a legitimate position to hold because it doesn't exist. You know, the objective stance is the one that sides with the perpetrator. It's just it. So I think there's there's a responsibility here. It's not, so I'm less interested in institutions and policies and procedures and rules about managing racism. I'm interested in as a collective, how do we create a culture around what we accept when it comes to race and racism and, and how we then tackle it? And as blackfellas, how we deal with it and as people of colour, what do we do? What do we do about it in spite of their staff? How do we understand what they're doing so we strategize a better outcome that just protects us a little bit? And, and how do we get more people taking up the fight against race? so that we're not all copying the uh, the brunt of it and being accused of always being hostile or aggressive or, you know. Yeah, it gets tiring. And I want to spend much of my, I'd rather spend more of my time building things than having, having to call stuff out. And I have to balance my labour around that. So I think there just needs to be more people stepping up and doing the work and taking up the fight instead of trying to argue over who's got the best theory around race. I think that's such a good way to close off because, it is that really strong reminder that nobody is outside of this. We're all in these relationships. We're all, you know, in relation in some way to one another. And therefore stepping up is just a part of actually saying, you know, I am committed to, to the people in my community. I'm not going to let this slide. I'm going to challenge it. Yeah. And I think the exciting work to come intellectually around race in this place is understanding some of these strategies, learning from them and sharing that knowledge and sharing those stories rather than the kind of does race exist, doesn't it, how much racism is there kind of stuff. It's how do we strategize the fight against fight against race. Um, and that's the really fun part of the work we get to do in terms of building this Indigenous Health Humanities as a new field of research is to build an intellectual collective that grapples with some of those issues of how we of service to people who experience racial violence and understand through their acts what is success, what is justice, you know, what does that feel like on, on Blackfellas terms, what, what might that mean? And so I think there's some, in amongst all of this, there's some really exciting work to be done that we can do that armors up the next generation for the occupations they enter into when it's their time. That was an interview with Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, and who joined us to expand on this really important discussion about institutional racism. That's all we have time for today on Women on the Line. Thanks so much for listening. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. If you're enjoying the program and want to listen back to past episodes, you can download them at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. We'll catch you then.